0: If you have a Bible, I'm going to continue in Mark. I don't know that I'm going to go all the way through the book at this point, but I'm going to continue on tonight for sure. So, we're in Mark 7. The title of the message tonight is, Christianity is Heart Religion. Christianity is Heart Religion. So, we're in Mark 7, and we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 23. And then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of His disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashing hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. And then the Pharisees and the scribes asked Him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? And he answered and said unto them, Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men? For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things do ye and he said to them full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition for moses said honor thy father and thy mother and whoso curses father or mother let him die the death but you say if a man shall say to his father or mother it is corban that is to say a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me well he shall be free And you allow him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered. And many such like things do ye. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, hearken unto me, every one of you and understand there is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him. Those are they which defile the man, and if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable, and he said unto them, Are you so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without enters into the man? It cannot defile him, because it enters not into his heart, but into his belly, and goeth out into the drought, purging all meats. And he said, that which comes out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. And Father, I just ask that you'll open our eyes to the truth in your word that Christianity is indeed a heart religion. And that is what you're concerned with, with our hearts, because out of the heart comes what we will speak, what we will do, what we will think, what we are. And I ask you'll just show us all that and make any corrections in our lives that we need, Lord, that we can give you all of our hearts and see your power manifested in so many ways in our lives and in our church. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus name. Amen. So, you know, when we pick up chapter 7 here in our study of Mark, the scene and the mood, it drastically has changed from what we saw over in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we had the miracle of the loaves and fishes, Jesus walking on the water, coming to His disciples to help them. I mean, it's just a lot going on there, right? And He comes and helps them, we said, in the midst of their trials. Many times, in the midst of our trials, as hard as they are, that's when we experience the Lord's presence. Amen? As tough as it is, that's when you'll have those encounters with the Lord. And that's why we need to hold fast to Him in our trials with the things we're believing for. And so, we didn't really talk much about those last four verses in Mark chapter 6 last time. But it's given a summary. What it does is give a summary of the ministry of Jesus once they landed that boat, it says, in the land of Gennesaret. Which, what that is, is there's a town there, but it's talking about a 3.5 mile Plain that ran from Capernaum down to Tiberias. And so it says Jesus ministered all along that stretch for some time. It says he went into cities and towns and in the country and miracles are taking place and word has gotten out. Look, look what it says in verse 56 and it says when whithersoever he entered into villages, cities or the country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were just but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. And they're talking about him. Look up in verse 55. And they ran through the whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was. I mean, they're talking about him through all of Israel. This is not something that was done in a corner. They knew about him. And so, what that does then is that's where we're heading into chapter seven. All this news is going about about this Jesus, things he's teaching. All these miracles are taking place. So what that does is that gets bigwigs down in Jerusalem. They send up a scout team. They want to check him out. Really what they want to do is figure out how they can stop him. And so we have verse 1. It says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which they came up from Jerusalem. Now, we have already, gone through Mark, he's already had three encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees, and none of them have been pleasant. You know, the first one is, he tells that man he forgives his sins when they lower him down, and they're like, that really gets them riled up. They they said, you are blaspheming. Only God can do that. And then he demonstrates that's exactly who he is. (laughs) That's that one that takes place. Then they see him later on. He's eating with sinners. Well, you don't do that not if you're a good Jew what are you doing you're a teacher of the law you claim to be and you're eating with sinners we would never do that the scribes and Pharisees are saying and then they say hey you're violating the Sabbath that's a big deal to the Jews that's part of their identity he's saying you're violating what we do on the Sabbath you're eating grain and not only that you're healing somebody are you going to heal this guy with the withered hand you're going to do that on the Sabbath day Jesus and he says, "Well, you know, let me ask you a question. Is it better to do good, or should we do evil? Should we save a life, or should we kill somebody? What's the purpose of the Sabbath?" And actually, you guys have missed it. They're always missing it, missing the purpose. And so he restores the man with the withered hand. And it says what after that? At the end of that, it says they took counsel together. They got together and they said, "We're going to figure out a way to destroy him. We're going to catch him in something." So here they're sending up this crowd. That's what they're wanting to do, wanting to catch him. But what we're going to see tonight in this section of Mark that we're looking at is it's dealing with the essential nature, the core part of what it means to be a Christian is what we're going to look at. It's going to be really one of the most important things that we will ever study. And it's given 23 whole verses in Mark. Now, that's a pretty big section. And God's making a big deal about it. And so the question it's saying is, what does it mean to be a Christian, to be one of God's people, to be a child of God? Is it mainly dealing with external observances and traditions? Does it have merely to do with "We've got the proper form? Is that what Christianity is all about? Or is Christianity essentially and primarily a heart religion? Primarily, it has to do with the heart. That is the essence. Of Christianity, and that is what makes it different from all other religions in the world because all they can do is deal with exterior change, right? There is no other religion in the world that can change a man's heart. Impossible. Only Christianity. Oh, yeah, Islam, they can get you praying more, they can put a sword to your throat, and they can get you to do a lot of things. You can become a reasonably good Muslim with a sword in your throat, but you can't do that to make somebody a Christian, can you? Only God can supernaturally change a person's heart If pray and fast on holy days, do things to find favor with God. Like I said, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ and the true gospel that truly a man's heart could be changed. And that is the core of Christianity. It's a supernatural, heart-changing religion. And it's been said, Christianity is touching people at the deepest realm of their being. And if you've been saved, that's what's happened to you. You got changed in the core of your being. It's not a matter of tradition or externals, but it's a matter of what God is concerned with in the lives of men. Isn't it? that we have changed truly changed hearts that love Him and love other people. That's what it's all about. Let me just take a minute here. We need to understand the Pharisees and what happened to them so that we can understand ourselves. Because, listen, as a movement they started off because their goal was we want to see the Lord's salvation that He has promised to the nation of Israel. We want to see it come here. That was their goal and motive when their movement got started. And so they felt the only way that was going to happen is for God's people to return to holiness and purity and separation from sin. And that's where we get the name Pharisee. It means separated ones, separated from sin in the world. And that was their goal initially. They had good motives. So, you know, they started at a time when Israel, they claimed to be God's people, but they're living worldly lives. And the Pharisees said, as long as that's taking place, these promises that we see in the Old Testament of God coming to us, they'll never happen. We'll never see them take place. We've got to reform ourselves. We've got to get separate from sin. That was their initial motive. Call them God's people back to a spiritual life devoted to God and His holiness. And so here there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But the danger and the problem began when the spiritual motivation began to disappear. And yet the structure that they started designing and became more and more refined was still in place they got this structure without the spirit of god taking place so i was thinking about that i thought well you know the salvation army i read about it got a lot of respect for the beginnings of the salvation army they started out as a truly godly and spiritual movement if you ever read any books about them william booth and his wife and everyone involved with that and they had a section of it over here in america there's a guy named samuel bringle i've got several of his books great books these people, I might not agree with everything, there are many theology, but I'm telling you, these people were sold out to God. And they prayed and they fasted and they lived a the life. They were concerned about sinners. They were sold out to that in the beginning. And those people will go out and they would open air preach on the streets and get stuff thrown at them and be bloodied up or whatever. And then they would go and they'd minister to prostitutes and drunkards and all the rejects of society. And I'm saying they had results. God's spirit and God's presence was on them in a very strong way. You can read a lot of stories. People to respect. But what happened over time was, and they set this big structure in place. It was not literal army. He, they called him General Booth. And it went on down, you had privates and corporals and, I mean, literally. They got this whole structure in place. And eventually what happened there is what happens with almost every movement like that. Eventually the zeal, the seeking God, that all starts going by the wayside. And next thing you know, you've got the structure in place but without the power. And so what do you have today? The Salvation Army, you get on their website, I'm saying they are predominantly a relief organization. Now, they will still say that they'll give Bibles and, you know, I don't know what extent that is. But they're primarily, their main thing now, it's reversed. Because back in the day with General Booth, well, they would find these prostitutes, these poor people, these drunks. They didn't have anywhere to stay, no clothes, no food. And they're like, we will help you out. That's part of being a Christian. I totally agree with that. But primarily, they were after their souls being saved. That was the primary focus. Now it's upside down from that. So, you know, they asked me to ring the bell, the Salvation Army bell. I told the guy, I said, I'll tell you what, I'd read about them. I said, I know what they're all about. So I'll tell you what, I'll ring the bell. And I said, well, what do you guys do with that money? And they said, well, we find needy people in the community that need it. I'm like, fine, I'll ring that bell till the cows come home. No problem. If you will let me hand out tracts and talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ while I'm doing it. And the guy's like, I don't care what you do. I said, praise the Lord. And that's what I did. I handed out tracks and rang the bell. I thought I'm going to get the Salvation Army at least on that corner. We're back where it was, praise God. But, I mean, they had tremendous things at their meetings, and they preached repentance. They did. Oh, strong message. And people, I mean, they were soundly saved. But I'm saying you, you have that form, and you lose the power. You lose the heart religion. you got an issue. Let's look at ourselves. Forget about the Salvation Army we got to look at ourselves in our church and churches like it we started we were formed because it's people saying hey I want more than what I'm getting I want to get back to primitive Christianity I want to get back to the book of Acts I want to get back to experiencing God's presence God answering prayers to me it was like this is what I clearly see the Bible saying and I didn't know about this church but when I heard You know, I'm like, man, somebody actually believes the Bible. I just didn't know anybody else. Maybe there's tons of churches out there that do, but that's what we were all about, right? And I moved down here. I think basically most people, you felt like for the most part, people are, they're sold out to the Lord. Praying, seeking the Lord, hungry for truth. We experienced his anointing. So a lot of you guys weren't born then. I'm telling you, back when we were here in the early 80s, it was a tangible presence of God, wasn't it? Brother Hampton would talk about that the floor would shake people for the most part is in their heart I want to trust the Lord that's the way it was desire to obey Him so His presence was in a manifest way in our midst and I'm telling you the truth we've been taught you can't have that truth if you don't have the consecration to go with it and the presence of God in your life it's not going to work we've got to examine our hearts it's going to have you in a bad way actually to really what we believe and what we say I'll tell you another thing. Fellowship back then, I experienced it up in Ohio. I experienced it when I first moved down here. Fellowship was natural. It was a natural thing. We were all pretty much on the same page over thing. But over time, you can still have the truth. But if our hearts are not single towards the Lord, we can have the form, but not the power. Amen. So you recognize something's missing, and I think that's why people are saying, I'm hearing things, we're praying for revival. Well, what is revival? What is that? I've read a lot about these different revivals in the past, and a constant theme that would happen many times is, they would say the preachers were orthodox. In other words, they're preaching truth. It wasn't that they were preaching error, they're preaching truth. Things are just dead, things are lifeless. And all of a sudden God starts moving on people's hearts. And it's like we want to experience His presence in a real way. And when that starts happening, then all of a sudden the Spirit of God comes. Repentance, true repentance takes place. That's what revival is. It's bringing your heart back to God first. And then He would come and all of a sudden these preachers, nothing happened to the preachers outside of the Spirit of God just came on them. And they're like, this guy, I heard him preach for years. This is not the same man, because that's what the difference the Spirit of God makes in a meeting in all respects. Whether it's the preaching, whether it's the fellowship. If the Spirit's not in it, you can try to organize fellowship all ways you want to. But when the Spirit of God's there, it will all just flow and work. Amen, it will. And that's what's happening. Spirit comes on people in these revivals you read about, and I mean everything's new form. That's the way it is. I see signs of that here. I really do. It's encouraging to me for Brett and his family that we got a lot of people praying and God moved in that situation and everyone is rejoicing. That's the way it should be. It really should. And we should see more of that and want more of that. Amen. The key is the heart. That is the key. That's what we're seeing here in this text that we're reading because the Pharisees had a heart problem. And it infected, it affected, and it did infect. They had a disease, a spiritual disease. It affected how they instructed others and how they lived their own lives. And Jesus had his most severe rebukes for the Pharisees, didn't he? When their hearts, he says, look, you do not want to be like them. He said, unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, do you want to get to heaven? Then don't let just external obedience replace a heart that is a heart that wants to please me only. That's what we have to have. That's what Christianity is. And so that's my first and I think really my only point because everything I have is going to have points and they just all kind of blended into it. But the Lord isn't concerned with externals. I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all. You, You know, you can't be living with a woman or living in fornication or looking at pornography and say God isn't concerned with that but the reason you're doing that is we'll see Jesus says that all comes from right in here. He's concerned with the heart and then he gets that right everything else will flow. But the Pharisees they were just consumed with what people were doing on the outside the external practice. And so that's what they're doing here. They're watching the disciples of Jesus to see what are they doing. They've just come from the Marcus place. That's what it says up in in chapter six, And when you're in the marketplace you're probably handling something that was from the Gentiles and you've got unclean hands. So what are these guys going to do about it? They're getting ready to eat the bread. Probably the bread that was a miraculous bread. They don't care about that part of it. It's just what are you going to do with that bread? You're going to eat that with dirty hands? Well what they call unclean hands. And they're washing them. Watching them that they're not washing them. All I can say is, I'm glad those guys were never around the construction sites we'd work at. Many of my lunches, I didn't have anywhere to wash my hands. It's not so much the hygiene that they're concerned about. It's the ritual purity behind all that. So they perverted the law is what they've done. That's what Jesus is accusing them of, right? So Exodus 30, you don't have to turn to that, but it's stated that the priest... They had to wash their hands and their feet before they would offer the burnt sacrifice, before they would offer sacrifices. But there's nothing in the law anywhere about that. people, the common person, has to wash their hands before they eat their peanut butter and jelly sandwich or whatever. There's nothing in there. These guys have made all that up. So what had happened is by the time of Jesus, these guys had developed these rules that were known as the tradition of the elders. It was these oral, the oral law. Right? What they did was they said, all right, we see what the law says, and we're going to apply that to, I mean, every single possible situation you could ever be in in this life. I mean, they had all kinds of minutia for anything that those Jews would ever encounter, telling them how to do it. They tell him, okay, even with the washing of the hands, it's not like you just went to the sink, washed your hands and you're done. No, they told him how much water they had to use, the position their hands had to be in and all of that stuff, the kind of vessel that it was done in. And one rabbi said this. I mean, they expected these people to do that. He said, whoever eats bread without previously washing the hands is as though he had relations with a harlot. I mean, that's how serious they took all this stuff. They used other words than that. The Pharisees claimed, oh, yeah, when Moses got the Ten Commandments and brought all that law down from God, he also brought down this oral law. And so they put it on the same level as the Bible, so to speak, the Torah, the Old Testament. They said it's equal with the law of Moses. You read this stuff, you laugh at the scrupulous details of them with the seeds and washing their hands multiple times. Sometimes they'd wash their whole body and all these different things you'd read about. We laugh at that. But for the Jews back in that day, it allowed them to show devotion to God through a common act of just washing your hands before you eat. But they became so consumed with all that, so consumed with all these little details of tradition that God said nothing about that they had to do, that they neglected, Jesus said, what really mattered? What's right in here? Justice and mercy and faith. Matters of the heart. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees were consumed with, just the externals. Outward conformity to the minutia. So, look at here in verse 5, it says, the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked Jesus, and they're trying to put Him down. They're saying, hey, you think you're a teacher, but look what your people are doing. Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashing hands. And they're totally unconcerned with the inward with the heart, totally unconcerned with that, totally oblivious to the condition of their own hearts. That's the place they'd gotten to. And Jesus called them on it. Look at verse 6 and 7. And he answered them. So they're saying, hey, how's come they're not following the tradition of the elders? And he says, well, has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips. He says, but their heart, is far from me how be it in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men and I'm saying that is a very strong rebuke that'd be very hard to take you know he called them hypocrites in our culture if you call somebody a hypocrite you better duck even if they really are or they aren't it doesn't matter but you know originally calling somebody a hypocrite was not an insult you know that it just became that way. All it was, that word just referred to an actor that played his part well. And so they had theaters back then, and if somebody did a good job, they'd walk up to him and they'd say, you know, you're a great hupakrites, hupakrites, or hypocrite. That's where we get our word from. That's the Greek, it sounds just like our word hypocrite. And that's what they'd say. So we say that about actors today, don't we? You watch some movie, you'd be like, oh, Tom Hanks, He always plays his parts well. He looked just like Sully or whatever in those movies. You wouldn't go up to him and say, you know, man, you're a great hypocrite. He'd be insulted. You say, no, you're a great actor. That's what they say. So, but the actor and the hypocrite, it's the same deal. So when you see these people, when they're not in their roles, these Hollywood people, and you see them being interviewed, they're not the same person, are they? They're nothing like it. Nothing like these characters. There's a major disconnect between the real Tom Hanks and the Tom Hanks that plays all these different people in these movies. So there's a mask he puts up, so to speak, isn't it, that hides the real him, and so that may be okay for a movie actor, even though I'd say a lot of them, most of them, if not all of them, have some real problems in a lot of different ways as a result of their career. But what may be acceptable in the movies with the movie actor is totally unacceptable with God. That's what he's saying. And Jesus told him, he says, well, has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites? You know, the word well is kalos. It means beautiful. And he's saying Isaiah has done a beautiful job of describing you hypocrites. That'd be really that much harder to take. He says, well, has he described you people? What he talked about you, you play actors. He said, you hold up this mask in public and you act like you're sincere and you're devoted to God in a loving way. The prayers you pray, the words you speak, the scriptures you quote. He said, but your heart that's behind that mask. He's saying that's the problem. Your mask is covering up the true story. What did he say to him? they honor me with their lips but what did he say he says your heart is far from me at a distance that word means at a great way off he's saying you're showing one thing you're putting this mask on but in reality your heart's not even close to where you are not even close to what you're doing your heart is a great way off I'm telling you when I was thinking about this nobody likes my message, everybody wants to go to sleep not that I'm seeing anybody doing that I'm saying it's convicting to me because how many times can we fall into that through the years, through the week, maybe even today where our heart's just not there we seem to be sincere in our devotion to God but our heart is somewhere else and he's saying he wants our heart with what we do in our lives sincere love and devotion to him you know what he's saying? You know what God is saying to us through this? He wants to be treated like we want to be treated. And what I mean by that is, what do we do when we worship God? You're saying things to him, about him, extolling him, how much you love him. I'm going to follow you. and all. When we have someone come and say something to us, don't we want them to be sincere? Don't you really? I mean, I do. And don't you kind of hate that when you know somebody's telling you about all these positive things about you, and you know for sure they don't mean a thing of it, right? All these things they're going to do, they don't mean any of it. We don't like that, do we? I don't. None of us do. Nobody, and God's saying, well, that's what I want from you, my people. I just want you to be sincere with me. Give me your heart. Mean what you say when you sing, when you pray. And that's shown by the way we do those things. Because we're not hiding anything from Him. Isn't that what Hebrews 4 says? The Word of God, it's like an x-ray machine. When it comes forth, all of a sudden it exposes what was hidden, doesn't it? Because He said it's alive and it's powerful. And it's going to expose the thoughts and intents of our heart. Because we're not hiding anything from the Lord. We can hide it from each other. And sometimes we even hide it from ourselves. But He sees our hearts. And that's what He wants. And that's what we have to look at the Pharisees would say and did one thing but their intentions their intentions their sincerity was completely different and that's what we have in Matthew chapter 6 says, don't be like the hypocrites they give large sums of money but their intention is not what it appears to be they're not intending to help the poor or to be obedient to the Lord he says they want to do that they blow a trumpet here's my check What do you blow a trumpet for? You want to draw attention to something, don't you? And he says, that's what they're doing. They're only doing that. They're acting like they're pious about it. But he's saying their only real intention is to get glory of men. And we all do that one way or another. He says, don't do that. Or they'll pray. And I'm sure they pray like they got this sincere and pious devotion to God. But he says, you're only doing that, the other you want glory of men, you're only praying like that to be seen of men. And he says, when you fast, when you look like you're mourning, you just want everybody to see how deep and pious you are. Never were those people sincere before the Lord. And that's what he's telling us. All the Sermon on the Mount, isn't that really dealing with heart issues, with adultery He's saying it doesn't matter. I mean, I had a man tell me one time, I'll be right on the day I die. I've never cheated on my wife. Just basing his hope of eternity on outward conformity. But his heart was filled with lust. I knew it. And God says that is what salvation is, is having your heart changed, not this outward conformity. You know, but in each one of those cases in Matthew 6, you know what Jesus said? They want to be seen by men, they want to glory in men, they want men to see how pious they are. And he says they've got their reward. And think about that when we do things for that reason. Think how fleeting and momentary that is, that reward. It's nothing. But think about the reward. He says, if you will do it from your heart, pray and give. Your only motivation, you can't help it if somebody sees or knows and sees you pray or hears you pray. He's saying close out everything else when you do things for the Lord, when you live your life. He's saying, close out everything else and just know in your heart, I'm only doing these things because I want to please my heavenly Father. Because he says these other things, the other way of doing stuff, that's that light, momentary ward, What a waste. But he says, if you'll do it for the right reason, he says, you'll have a reward from your Father. He'll bless you in your prayers, but also you'll have that reward of eternal life. Look what he goes on to say in verse 7 there. He says, they, how be it, he says, in vain. Because their heart is far from me. He says, because of that, in vain, they do worship me. That means, that word in vain means there is no purpose. There is no benefit in what they're doing. No benefit to them at all. That's something. So we're talking about a matter of salvation. Because the hypocrite does think he's gaining something by giving, praying, reading his Bible, attending church, doing good deeds, but Jesus is saying, when your heart's not in it and your heart is far away, He's saying there's no purpose in what you're doing. There's no benefit to you, no eternal benefit. It's vain. It's empty. That's something to think about. So God doesn't want us, His children, to be that way. He wants our hearts. So here's a good verse. I've heard this many times, read it many times. Proverbs 23, 26. This is what God says to all of us. My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. God says, just give me your heart. That's all I want. That's what God wants from us. And he's got that. He's got everything, doesn't he? Because what does your heart represent? It represents what makes us tick so to speak it's us it's our desires it's our will it's our feeling and so when God has our heart he has us you know when they'll talk about a girl with a guy when she said he's won his heart he's sunk I mean he's hooked I don't mean he's sunk because marriage that means it's just right around the corner when she's got his heart either that or she's going to break it one or the other once we've given God our heart like that And that's what I think everybody here that claims to be a Christian has done on that day of salvation. I don't think anybody bows the knee thinking I don't really mean this. I sure would hope not. But once we do that and we've given the Lord our heart, the Bible says we've got to guard that because we've got our flesh, the world, and the devil doing everything they can to steal your heart, to get your heart far away from God. That's the goal of everything in this world. And it is hard work. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Like I said, that is hard work to guard your heart. With all diligence, another translation says this, Watch over your heart with the utmost care. And it's the picture of a prison guard that's given this dangerous criminal that he's got to escort somewhere. Oh, he better watch that guy if he did not keep a good eye on him guess what he might be dead he said you've got to watch that because your life depends on it and that's what he's saying here keep thy heart with all diligence why for out of it at heart that's what we're going to be judged on out of it are the issues of life it's life and death and like I said when he has our hearts you know what comes from that then obedience will just flow right out of it it will you don't have to be conjoled. You will not have to be browbeaten. I like this verse too. This is another good verse, Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. And I like the NIV translation. I don't like the NIV for a lot of things. What the NIV does is they'll look at the Greek and a lot of times they're giving you their interpretation. They're not going to say, this is what it means. They're going to say, well, we think this is the way it's a good interpretation. Well, sometimes the NIV might be right about their interpretation, and sometimes it may not be. But I like their interpretation of this verse, Romans six seventeen, And it says this in the NIV. It says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart. The pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. And that's really the sense of what the Greek is saying. I don't have any problem with what the King James says, but it's saying that word, that doctrine, that teaching you've had, which we've had, we should be obeying it from the heart in sincerity. And God will honor that. And the allegiance we have to the word is not because the church teaches it or everyone else is doing it or it's a tradition it's because we see it clearly in the word and we want to obey god our savior that gave that to us but listen we were slaves of sin weren't we isn't that what paul's saying we did what we wanted i did he says but thank god when he got our hearts that's what repentance and jesus his grace is all about he Brings our hearts into submission to Him through the Holy Spirit. That's what salvation is. He says, when we did that, we obey then not because we have to, not because we're afraid not to, but we obey because that teaching, our God, claims our allegiance to Him. Amen? And so it says His commandments are not burdensome. They shouldn't be burdensome or grievous. That's what the word means. And so that is the focus of the Lord. I'm going to keep saying it, is our heart. And that's where he writes his law. That's what we're talking about. And once he's done that, that's where our allegiance lies. Jesus says here in our text here, but the hypocrite, the hypocrite in heart whose heart is far from the Lord is not concerned about obeying God's commands. They just don't have a heart for it. Don't have their heart. And it says there's four things we see here that the hypocrite will do. In verse 7, it says they replace it. It says, how be it in vain, they teach for doctrines, the commandments of men. They replace God's teaching with the commandments of men. And the second thing they do, it says they lay it aside in verse 8, for having laid aside the commandment of God. They give it up. In other words, they abandon it, is what he's saying, what God wants them to do. And actually, the third thing they do is even stronger than that in verse 9. They'll reject the word. And he said unto them, full well you reject. They not only lay it aside, that's a lot stronger word there is they reject it. It means they reject it as being invalid. They're like, I don't have to do this. That's kind of the way they're looking at things. And the, other, the last thing it says in verse 13, it says, they make the word of God of none effect through their tradition, which they delivered. That means no influence, no power in their lives when they lay it aside and reject it. Then the word, because of their tradition, no longer has any power. And he gives a prime example of how they do that right here in our text. He says, the law of Moses is clear. Look in verse 10. He says, for Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, he says, let him die the death. So look, he begins verse 10. He says this is what Moses said. But verse 11, he says, But you say something that's going to totally override that. And here's what we need to see we can never let what we think, what we feel, what we say to override the clear principles of the Word of God. Because Jesus said, This is what God wanted you to do in the Word. He wants you to honor, respect, and care for your parents. And the reason is back then and even now in most of the world, people did not have retirement plans. They didn't have Social Security in their days. And so their children had to take care of them or they wouldn't make it. And it's still like America. We got Social Security and all this IRAs, retirement. They don't have that in most of the world. Kids still take care of their parents in their old age. In fact, it even still happens some here. My wife's dad, when his dad got really sick, he just moved him in his house. And he cared for him up to the day he died. Just took care of him. I mean, I'll tell you, that's honoring your parents. That's probably too old school for most people. I mean, nursing home stuff and all that modern stuff, I mean, really? It's the way it has to be sometimes, but that's not the way it's always been. But here's the principle. Jesus said this is the principle. We're to honor, respect, and care for God-given authority. So it begins, the reason he says honor your father and mother, that covers all authority. That is the basic authority, where it starts, the basic level, with our parents. And it goes from there, doesn't it? You honor your father and mother. Well, guess what? People that have parents that teach them to honor and respect and obey them, you know what happens? When you meet them in the church, when you meet them at school, they're respectful. The ones that don't, they're disrespectful. So it starts with the parents and moves out and from there into society. That's the principle that's there in that commandment. It extends to teachers, the government leaders, policemen, and even masters if you're a slave. Anyone that's in authority. So Peter says it like this. He says honor the king. And then he goes right after that he says servants be made subject to your masters with all fear. So he's saying it extends from the highest to the lowest. God says you should honor the king just like you honor your parents, people in authority. So that means we don't have a right, if you want to bring it up to date, to replace the commandments of God with the tradition of men like the U.S. Constitution. It gives the right of freedom of speech. But God doesn't give us freedom of speech, does he? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't give us the right to speak evil of authorities. But everybody else and all the news things and most of the half the country, they feel like they can say anything they want to. But God doesn't give us that right. And he's telling the Pharisees, you've taken that basic principle of respect for authority and you've made it void by your teaching on Corbin. He's saying, God says, I want children to honor and respect and care for their parents. That is what that commandment is in place for. That's the principle. He says, but you've come up with this tradition that won't allow that to happen look in verse 11 he says but you say if a man shall say to his father or mother it is corbin that is to say a gift by whatsoever thou mayest be profited by me he shall be free and he says not only that he goes you won't even let them you won't even permit them if their conscience is saying i should help my parents they're saying no you can't take that money that you've made corbin you can't use that to help your parents Ah. Uh-huh. It's dedicated to God. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, you allow him no more to do aught for his parents or his father or his mother. Verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered and many such things, he says, like you do it. So here's what we need to see is New Testament Christianity is not a set of rules for every situation, is it? it's principles that are meant to allow us to be guided by the spirit and sometimes that's happened in the past so a principle is you don't want to be conformed to the world you don't want to be conformed to the world and their dress and the crazy things they do but just to give an example you know you can't wear the old days you can wear a certain type of tennis shoe and that kind of became a law and i'm saying that that principle's not even there necessarily because i'm thinking i'm hearing what you're saying I understand. I'm listening for the principle. But the fact of the matter is, I wore that shoe for cross country years before this teaching ever came out. And I still wear them to go running. Are you telling me I can't go outside and go running because the homosexuals decided to make that address statement? I'm like, that's to me what starts entering into that. But the idea is, though, we find what the principle is. That's what Jesus is saying. And they put the principle in your heart and trust the Holy Spirit to show you how to live that out. So, yeah, if there's some fashion statement, people, you know, the way they cut their hair in some goofy way and do whatever all else. We shouldn't be modeling that. But to sit here and make rules on exact hair length or whatever all else. That's when the problem comes in and making laws by all that. But that doesn't invalidate principles though amen you all follow me on that that's what i think it says so it's not just the outward conformity it's obedience from the heart when we're guided by those principles the law of christ you know that's another thing that became a law almost split this church in half when nobody had a tv in this church back in the early 80s right and when one of those came in or seemed to be all that all of a sudden well that's a law that can't be violated that's a major problem but here is the law that you can't have a tv should that be a law to the point of you're going to perish if you do no and there's people that don't have tvs i got a lot of respect for that i think that's probably a good idea but to make a law out of that and set one person over another i'm saying what is the principle though the principle is this there are things on TV you can watch in a clear conscience, but the guiding principle is Psalm 101.3. I will set not a wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. So does that mean you get a TV, you just free to watch whatever you want to? I would say not as a Christian. You better not. There's a lot of vulgar, pornographic things like that. And that's violating the principle of the Sermon on the Mount. That the look of lust is the same as committing the act. Or whatever, whatever else would be on there. So it's not like a rule about how tight your clothes are, whether it's pants, whether it's, I mean all of that stuff. But the principle is what? What does the New Testament teach? What you should wear should be modest before God, and you should be taken into consideration, especially if you come into church. And I'm saying this is man or woman. Is what I'm putting on? Is it going to cause a brother or a sister to see me to stumble? Is that not what modesty we're talking about there? It's not I'm free to wear whatever I want to or we can only wear jean dresses. No, it's we should dress in a modest way that we're not causing other people to stumble. I think that's the guiding principle. So it's not like I'm here at church and I'm not really into praise. So we're talking about the heart because man, I really got a lot to do at work tomorrow and I could be thinking about that instead of singing this song we've sang a hundred times, right? That's not what it should be. But it should be our heart should be, hey, we're here. That God has done a lot in my life, and I'm very thankful for it. And I'm gonna take the opportunity to praise Him, and we had a good opportunity tonight. Ben did a great job. Despite what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, God really does want us to wash our hands. You're like, what? <laughs> oh no, He does. And if they'd have known their Old Testament as well as they should have, the Pharisees would have known that He wants us to wash our hands. James 4, eight says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. And they're looking at it like these hands, these physical hands are what God's concerned about. And if you do that, everything's okay. He's saying, no. Is that what the Lord's talking about? Old and New Testament? No, He's saying... Your hands just represent the works that come from your heart. And that's why they're spoken of together many times in the Old Testament and the New. Psalm 1820 says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. My heart, according to the cleanness of my hands has He recompensed me. And what about this Psalm? Psalm 24, 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in His holy place? He that has... Clean hands and a pure heart. So what hands are, is God concerned with? These hands, that they're clean, or here? This heart, that it's clean, that it's pure, that it's His. It's devoted to Him. And when that's the case, your hands represent the things you do, what you say, your works, and they will be acceptable before God. They can't be anything but that. Jesus said, make the tree good and then its fruit will be good talking about our hearts the condition of the hearts will determine the works of our hands Jesus is pleading with these people verses 14 and 15 he said and when he had called all the people unto him he said unto them hearken listen unto me every one of you without exception he says and please understand He says, there is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. He says, but the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. He's really putting an importance on what he just said. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Can he put any more stress on that than what he just did? He's saying, listen up. No exceptions. Listen up. It's what's in your heart that will defile you. That's what we have to be concerned about, all of us. And I mean, man, it really caused me to do some searching, some soul searching about my heart. We've got to have our hearts right with the Lord. That's what he wants. It's not about ritual, customs, all those things. But the uncleanness that lies in the heart, all of our problems are there. That's what comes out of there. And so David understood that. King David, he understood that. He understood that after he committed adultery with Bathsheba to get right with God, the issue was in here with him. That's what needed to be changed. Create in me, we sing the song, a clean heart, because he knew his wasn't, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He pleaded, cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And he said this, restore unto me The joy of my salvation. And that's where true joy comes from, is having your heart fully given to the Lord. That's when it'll come. David went on to say in Psalm 51, he says, For you desire us not sacrifice, not the outward, else I would give it. You delight not in burnt offerings. But he said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. As David says, God, what he desires is truth in here. Truth in the inward parts. That's what God's after. Not all these outward things we do that everyone may applaud us for. He wants it in here, right? And he'll bless us for that when we do that. So the question tonight is, do you want to have heart religion? That's what true Christianity is. Do you want to let the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart to rule to reign, to commune with you—that's what he wants to do. To speak to you, to rebuke you, and to love you in your heart. That's what God wants. Our heart filled with that, and that's the path to revival. That's what the Bible teaches—the path to revival. When our hearts are fully committed to the Lord. If you just turn to this last scripture, to Joel two, Joel two, Joel chapter two, and beginning in verse twelve, it says this. Therefore, also now saith the Lord, what does He say? Turn ye to Me, even to Me, with what? He says all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And He says, don't worry about tearing your your garments and an outward thing. He says what in verse thirteen? Rend or tear your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Why? Because here's the God you would be turning to. He is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. And who knows if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. And look what happens. If people will do that, if we'll do that as a church, look what it says in verse 18. Then, after that, will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer. Think about what he's saying there. If you know you're not right with God, something's not right. And he says, if you'll rend that heart before me and have a contrite and humble heart, it says, God will pity you for that. You're not going to turn that away. That's something else, isn't it? It's the God we serve. He pities people. Verse 19, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I'll send you corn and wine and oil, and you'll be satisfied therewith, and I will no more. Make you a reproach among the heathen. And look in verse 23. He says, Be glad then ye children of Zion and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He has given you the former rain moderately and He will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And here's what Starla said. And this is what the Lord says. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you, and you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed, and you shall know that I am in the midst of Shelbyville, and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And he says it again, my people shall never be ashamed. That's a tremendous promise if we'll do that. Praise the Lord. So we just commit ourselves corporately and individually as a church to examine our hearts. Let the Lord speak to you. If he hasn't already, he's spoken to me quite a bit. What's defiling your heart? Because it's going to be different for everybody, right? Is it covetousness, fornication, pornography, deceit, slander, pride? Whatever it is that's defiling. What does he say? Let's draw an eye to God. He tells you to do that with that, un, that heart that needs cleansed. Draw nigh to him with that. You're just wanting to get things right. Don't let that keep you away. Draw an eye to God. Allow him to draw an eye to us, and he'll give us the grace. To cleanse our hands like He wants us to cleanse our hands, not like the Pharisees. And to purify our hearts. He'll create in us a new heart as we respond to His Spirit, I would say, and walk in holiness. And so let me just end with this. Let the song we sing be our prayer. Change my heart, O God, make it ever true. Change my heart, O God, may I be like you. He says, you are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me. This is what I pray. That's a song we sing here. Amen. Can we make out our prayer tonight and see God come in our midst as we read in Joel 2 and bring us restoration of the things the devil has stolen from us that he has no right to. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, I just ask that you'll impress on all of us, Lord, that We can look at our hearts and there's many ways, Lord, that we can more fully give you our hearts. And that's what you want from us. And I just ask you'll show us clearly what all of us individually need to do to give us your whole heart. Give you our whole heart, Lord. And uh, just convict us where we need convicted and encourage those that need to be encouraged. And that we can know, Lord, that if we'll do that and come before you with contrite hearts, that you will have pity on us and bless us and restore unto us all that has been taken. And we look to you for that, Lord. I ask that you'll put a spirit of prayer and seeking your face on this congregation, Lord, that we can know your presence again in a full manner. And I thank you that you'll do that. And that's my prayer and our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Teach me thy ways, O Lord. That I may walk in thy truth. You are